time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 59 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patrick, alongside the golden god himself, Aaron. I am a golden god! And I'm on drugs. Well, one of those things is true. Um, okay. <laughs> this week, we are covering Cameron Crowe's Oscar award-winning film, Almost Famous. Oh yeah, it's all happening, and we are excited to talk about this great coming-of-age film, respectively. Aaron, welcome. Good to have you tonight. Well, I appreciate being invited back on your podcast, Patrick. <laughs> Thank you for having Too weird segue, yeah. <laughs> the night circus, here it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh I'm excited for tonight, bud. Um having not seen this film until just recently and it having been one of my bigger blind spots, a, a film that I knew people who just adored this movie, uh and yet I hadn't watched it. Um and then finally having seen it, like I said, a couple months ago and Falling, falling in love with it instantaneously, it was the kind of movie that I knew you were going to love, uh, and I just know your taste well enough to be able to predict that, and so having you finally get to see it and um, hopefully have a similar reaction to it, I'm just I'm pumped to kind of find out where you landed and what you thought of it and talk about it, because I think it's, it's a, just a phenomenal movie and it's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have uh, put a lot of, you know, quotes or little callbacks to the movie in the uh, the intro had I not uh, liked it at least somewhat. So that's a good positive sign that uh, my movie experience was pretty good. Before we do that, though, let's get into what we've been up to this week. We've kind of been hit or miss, and uh, I know that you've been fairly busy with, uh, well, podcast-related stuff and possibly job stuff. But why don't you tell us what's been going on? Well. For me, I have been putting a lot of time into the show in the last week or so, and so most of my hobbies and other time, other entertainment uh, things have just kind of fallen by the wayside. Haven't had time for gaming or many of my anime series or Battlestar Galactica catching up. I just, I've had to be watching a lot of films. Um, And the reason for that is because the Seattle International Film Festival launched today um, as we're recording, and so... Leading up to that, I had to get a bunch of movies watched so that I could put an episode out uh, with a good buddy of mine, a local film critic named Mike Ward, who runs a website called ShouldISeeIt.net, which has fantastically written reviews, spoiler-free, really good stuff. They list pros and cons of the movie and give you the perfect, you know, the perfect explanation of should you see it or not. So, um. We were kind of prepping for this SIF launch, and it's been a lot of a lot of work. Uh, I, I say that you know, kind of laughingly, because it's fun to watch movies, but at the same time, when you're in a time crunch, um, it takes away the freedom of choice if you've got to do a certain thing. So I had a blast with it, and uh, we got our first episode of SIF coverage recorded recently, and that is up on the Feelin' Film Plus side of things on the new feed that we have Um, been working on that this last week as well for listeners who are not aware yet 
we recently put out a new feed called Feelin' Film Plus, and this is just another area where Patrick and I are going to use this to have conversations about things that are not necessarily movies. You may get some movies in there as well, um, but we wanted to not kind of crowd this main feed with a whole bunch of other stuff. But Patrick and I have passions for other things like books or documentaries or anime series or this film festival coverage. And so it's kind of goes by the tagline of where our passions lead to conversation. And that's the way we're going to treat it. We may have lots of different guest hosts on there. Um, it's just going to be a smorgasbord of content. So go over to Feelin' Film Plus. You can find that in any of your podcast catchers. Subscribe to that and check it out. Uh, we'll try to keep this one clean with a routine, you know, movie every week that we do and a couple of special ones every month that are normally planned. And other than that, we'll put the rest over in Feelin' Film Plus and you can choose to partake in that or not. Fantastic. Uh, other than that, man, yeah, we've got a uh, little bit of other news from this week that has do kept do me do busy. Do 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 do. That's the you know news bulletin, news flash, right? I, you know, I never want to add sound effects to this podcast. I would much rather <laughs> hear you do that. Um, so not only is Feelin' Film expanding into a second kind of feed podcast, um, but we have expanded our team as well, and we have brought on a new writer. Uh, his name is Jeremy, and he is going to be doing a weekly TV column. Jeremy, somehow, don't ask me how, you guys can find him on Twitter or in our Facebook group and ask him your darn selves, somehow he watches 20-plus different TV shows every single week. Now, how he accomplishes that and still keeps up with movies, I don't know. I mean, this guy is like, he's the hero, right? He is the rock star of uh, consuming TV and movie entertainment, as far as I'm concerned. But he put out his first column already. It's up on the blog, on the website. Fantastic stuff. And I think you're really going to enjoy what he's got to offer. Because if you're watching almost anything, he's watching it too. <laughs> and so he's going to talk about the shows that you guys are into. And anything that happens out there in the TV world, the serialized storytelling, he's going to hit on it and... Have some good feedback for it. So you can check that out. It's called Feelin' TV. Uh, you can find it in the read section of our website. Fantastic, Aaron. I am definitely looking forward to getting to uh, hear more about hear more of his, uh, his writing voice. But I'm equally as excited about the fact that he's a big fan of The Flash. And he was looking for someone to talk about the bombs that were apparently dropped this week. I have not caught up with The Flash yet, but I'm anxious to get back to that particular post and join the discussion. So thanks, Jeremy, for being a Flash fan. I'm looking forward to catching up and talking to you about the uh, the show that uh, is on the, the CWF. You mentioned Feeling Film Plus and how we... Uh, did you say... Corn, you didn't say Cornucopia. Did you say Cornucopia? No, I you s- used Smorgasbord. I used right. Smorgasbord. Yes, one of the big words. <laughs> well, in any case, uh, I have been... Uh, I just started reading a book this week, and it's an older book by Patrick Ness called... Um, let me find it here. More than this. It's not, I don't know if it's one of his more of his popular books. I know that a monster calls is very popular between the two of us. I know that, um, we've had conversations about his, uh, chaos walking trilogy, but this one, I believe you actually got from me a couple of years ago 
and in response to me winning one of our, maybe it was a March Madness bet or um, Bowl Mania or something like that. And I just never had a chance to sit down and read it. So part of my, my, my summer scheduling of putting some books in my, in my lap, this is one of them. And I'm about, uh, I don't know, maybe 150 pages in. And it's interesting, <laughs> let me just say. I've, I've read, having read A Monster Calls and having read the, the first book in the Chaos Walking series, it's not a deviation from what I would expect from him as an author, but it's still kind of, there are some awkward moments in it. And it's, it's a mystery, essentially. Uh, it's about a, a guy named Seth who wakes up. The beginning of the book starts with him essentially drowning and waking up in this place after drowning. And it's essentially a replica, maybe, of his old hometown. And so this first part of the book is really his monologue with himself. I mean, it's written in third person, so we're getting that third person narrative. But the book itself is exploring a lot of uh, these, these notions of, am I really dead? What's going on here? Is this hell? And is this punishment for this thing that happened that we don't know about? So Ness is really hinting at something big that took place not too long ago. And this character, Seth, is trying to work out if this is part of that plan. He's not really sure if this is a real place, although he does feel pain, he feels hunger, he feels thirst, all these things. But it's really set up as like kind of a reveal little bits at a time. And I've enjoyed it, but I'm not quite sure what to think of it just yet. It's not one that I can definitely say, you know, 100 pages in, dude, you got to read this or, you know, save your money. It's, you know, the jury's still out, but it hasn't, nothing about it has turned me away from it. So I'm curious to see where it's going to go from here. I know that Chaos, the first book of the Chaos Walking trilogy is making a, a movie release next year, 2018. And so I'm looking forward to seeing one of his other book adaptations on the big screen. And if this is uh, anything like those two books, maybe it'll make its way to the big screen as well. But uh, yeah, so far I'm liking more than this. Yeah. And the book. Yeah, I was going to say that the the adaptation of Chaos Walking is actually going to star Daisy Ridley. So oh. um, that's a that's a pretty big get for that series. If yeah. if you're going to draw people in, um, in fact, if it's coming out next year, that would be one of the first real things that she's doing other than Star Wars. Um, so, I mean, the hype around it just because of her, it's going to have potential. Um, I'll have to see who's doing the directing and things like that. I'm kind of torn on that series personally, having read a few of the books. Um, I don't dislike it. There are parts of it that annoy me, <laughs> but um, I, I don't totally dislike it. So you, what you're telling me Poo-tod. though is... Poo Todd. Poo Todd. Oh man, you had to. So is is there a yew tree in more than this? I guess that's my main question. No, there's not. Not yet. Um, we just discovered that there are foxes and that there are ducks. That's about the only other life that exists <laughs> outside of Seth. And that's what you know, he, he, there's a point in the book so far where he goes, did I conjure these up? Did I, did I create them? No, no, I didn't. And so it's, it's weird, man, because you're, 
you know, you're literally walking with him down this, these deserted roads and you're going into these stores where he's, you know, pillaging old cans of, of, you know, beans and stuff like that. And I don't know, I, I just got through a part that, frankly, I was kind of creeped out about, you know, I'm reading this, you know, when it, the lights are on and it's dark outside and I'm like, uh, I'm getting kind of a weird feeling based on the scene that's being set up here. So in that regard, it's, it's, it's very intriguing. Um, but there are other parts where he flashes back to, uh, to things that have happened before that are kind of tying in these moments and they've taken kind of a left turn for me. Like I didn't expect certain things to be happening. Um, you know, with some relationships that, that he has with people. Um, it's again, it's interesting at this point and I can't really say if it's good or bad, but, but, uh, but I'm going to keep, uh, getting through it and, um, hasn't, hasn't, uh, turned me away by any means, but nice. I just don't know what to think. So, well, we'll look forward well, to hearing what your final thoughts are on that one in the end when you finish it. Yeah. Yeah. It may, it may show up on, Feeling Film Plus, if there's somebody out there that's read it and wants to have a conversation. So that might be something worth digging into. But we are feeling film right now. And tonight we are talking about Almost Famous. So before we get into it, we'll give our obligatory spoiler alert. We're going to be talking about lots of things, including the ending, connecting points, all the things that would make this movie, well, it would still be good even if you knew all this stuff, but not as good if you haven't seen it yet. So that being said, you and I are both recent watchers of this film. This is one that neither of us had seen since, you know, at least, you know, 20, you know, before 2017. So what did you take away? What was your initial reaction watching it the first time? Well, as you know, I loved it because I immediately told you that I loved it and suggested that you go watch it right away. The film is I was shocked and upset with myself for not having seen this sooner. This this is a movie where there this happens very rarely, but I will like it enough that I know it's one that I'm going to want to revisit and so I feel like I've cheated myself out of some of those times, right? There's there's a certain amount of years of having been able to see this that I've I've lost and I will never get those back. And so in that way I was a little sad um, because I just absolutely loved it. I think um, it's a wonderful story. There's such a heart to it. And I, as we have been discussing kind of between the two of us this past week, we're both really discovering that coming of age stories in general are something we truly love and and we're noticing when we look back at time and we see these different films and we're like hey we liked this one and we loved this one and wow there's a trend here <laughs> maybe this is a genre that we just connect with and i think that there's reasons for that um you know coming of age films largely include a lot of good music they do have a heart factor to them there's a growth in the characters there's a problem to overcome but it's never usually like a villainous type of situation where there's another person or another antagonist trying to ruin things. It's more self-imposed a lot of times. And I just enjoy seeing people go through these stages. Um, you know, the acting in this one is great. The music is great. It's just a joy to watch, Patrick. I, 
I, I think the words I used um, on my review were my heart is full when I finished watching it because I just felt so good about seeing someone pursue his passion, go through this process and come out a little bit different. And that's all that matters. I, I don't, I don't need to know what happens to William in the rest of his life. Um, I enjoyed seeing what happened to William over the course of this summer. And that was enough for me. That's great, man. And I, I, I echo all those sentiments. I walked away from this going, ah, man, I missed out when this came around. But I don't think, and I gotta, I gotta say, I don't think I would have appreciated this when it came out in 2000. Fair. Because it's, it hasn't been until recently that I've enjoyed, or at least realized how much I enjoy the coming of age movie genre. Um, as early as watching movies like The Outsiders or, um, or Stand By Me. Movies like that that I look back and I realize why I like those. It wasn't just because they had great casts or because they were um, written, they were based on books that I had read or whatever. I look at these and I, and I go, there's something heartfelt, as you mentioned, but there's also something that has a timelessness to it. And I love that the movies that we have gravitated towards in this genre have not necessarily been movies that exist in today's era. You know, this, this movie took place in the 60s and 70s. And Sing Street, of course, one of my favorites, took place in the, in the 80s. And movies like The Outsiders took place in like the 50s. And I, I think that when you have movies that can stand the test of time, it becomes less about the actors, less about the writing, although those are important things, and really more about the story itself and the connectability that that has. And so I remember specifically finishing that movie and just kind of stepping outside of myself and going, wow, you got a big smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I love being able to kind of prep for uh, this week's episode because I began to ask, why did I enjoy that so much? What was it about that? And I think it connects because it's a coming of age film. It has those same kinds of elements that I gravitate towards in these other films. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned about the coming of age film, one of the staples is that there's growth by a character. Well, two things. One, um, I love that you said that there's not a villain. I think that these types of films are unique in that they don't have a villain. They don't have to. And, and that's something that, um, that I think gives them some power, but there's also a serious amount of growth and we know that there's growth in William. I mean, that's kind of the obvious thing, but did you see any growth in other characters and like any way specifically that you can call out? Oh, for sure. I mean, absolutely. I think this is one of the more ensemble like nature of coming of age tales that you'll ever see because it's, it's in no way just about William. Um, William is our device. He is, he is our focal point to kind of mm -hmm. take us through the story and take us through the progression of time. But he is in no mean, by no means the only character that is growing throughout this, this tale. Um, you know, Penny for one, Definitely goes through a process of growth, um, going from a band aid to 
a person who maybe understands love a little better at the end of the film and understands yeah. what real love is and what it could mean for her. Um, you know, her choices at the end of the movie to go on that trip to take, take her time and go see the world, go to Morocco, um, show that she's grown because she's choosing to explore and to learn and to go do these things other than go and follow another band around. Right. Um, so she has changed in that regard. Mm-hmm. And and of course, by not necessarily accepting Russell back and instead ushering him to William's house <laughs> secretly, which was awesome. Um, that was great. Russell grows, obviously. Um, we see him go through a, a very hard time as the prototypical rock star of the era. And I know Cameron Crowe tried to base him off of a, a whole bunch of different rock stars from that time and just get a sense of what it was like for someone to start to become famous and understand the idea of celebrity and start drinking the Kool-Aid and the power and the, you know, enjoyment of that praise that comes with it. And we see him progress because in the, in the end he, he's different. He changes. He understands that he made a mistake and he tries to go make up for it. Um, is he perfect? No. And I love that. I think that him not being flawless and him not getting his story wrapped up with a little bow, like it absolves all of his mistakes because the story doesn't do that. It just simply says, okay, well, you know, here's who I am now and here's who I want to try and be. And so he changes, uh, the mom changes to me. Um, there's a great scene at the end of the film that I really noticed this viewing where when uh, William and his sister come back home and she meets him on the porch and she goes up to his sister and she starts to hug her and sister's like backing away, like, get, what are you doing? Like, why are you, <laughs> why are you getting up on me right now? And she finally hugs her and she says, um, gosh, I thought I'd written it down. Oh, where did it go? She says, I forgive you. And the sister just says, I, I didn't ask. And she just <laughs> hugs her, and then they both start smiling. But what that tells you is the mom has gone through a period of changing, and she now accepts the choices that her daughter had made and just wants to have a, a relationship with her now versus right. holding on to this regret. So, yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I think quite a few characters change. The only one that doesn't, in my opinion – to be honest, or the one that, that I can call out specifically that does not get a real sense of change would be Jeff. Um, okay. Jason, Jason Lee's guitarist because, or a singer lead singer. Mm -hmm. Um, because we don't get any kind of resolution for him in the end. The last thing we know about him, if I remember right, is the band being angry when they find out that William has written the truth about them in the Rolling Stone article. Mm -hmm. And I don't recall us really having any more interaction with him or seeing what happens. So he's not part. I mean, we hear that all of the band retracted their statements, but that's, I mean, kind of off screen type stuff. We don't see him go through a change. And, you know, if I had to complain about anything, that might be the one thing I would complain about because we do see him be so vocal on that plane 
uh, of calling everybody out. <laughs> and and right. I would have liked to seen a little humility come to his character. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I think that you're right. I think him and, and probably Lester as well. I mean, Lester didn't really have much of a part. I mean, he, had, <laughs> no. he had a significant part in the, in the story, but not necessarily from a band perspective. Um, incidentally that, you know, I, I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman and this, you know, this, this performance just, you know, continues to remind me of just how great of an actor he was. Um, you mentioned that, that Jeff, uh, he gets incredibly frustrated because of what William writes and it brings to mind one of the themes of the film in this idea of being cool. The, the, the idea of being cool is peppered throughout the film. There are two instances of where I see Russell's change. Uh, one instance where he, you know, near the beginning of the film, and one instance near the end, based on two things that he says. And they all center around this idea of being cool. The first is when he's talking to William and he basically says, just make us look cool. You know, he's very concerned about what William's going to write. And he's trying, he's, I think this is just after where they're at the pool. And it's just after he's kind of poured out this just honesty to him. <laughs> but then later on near the end of the film, they're in uh, Topeka, no Tupelo, sorry, just after the, the plane lands. And he looks back at William and he goes, write what you want. And to me, I think those two lines really paint a, an incredible picture of the growth that, that, that Russell has as a character because he's now kind of confident in the fact that he's not afraid of being seen as cool or not. And, but that's really interesting because if, you know, we think about that idea of being cool and how at first it's kind of a trivial idea, something that is very much part of rock and roll. You know, if you're a rock star, by default, you're cool. But by the end of the film, we kind of question what that means. You mm-hmm. know, we see cool as being something that has currency, has status. It allows people to be not quite honest with one another, to kind of keep secrets, to take on different identities. And I've never seen that concept played out in a way where it becomes something that's incredibly important. I've seen it used in sort of a haphazard way or maybe a lighthearted way of like, that's cool and that's not cool. But this is a very important thing. At least it's perceived that way in the world of rock and roll. Um, what do you think about that? Did you pick up on that that at all? Well, yeah. I mean, it's definitely the, the idea of what it means to be cool it comes right at the very beginning when – you know, Dexter is talking to um, William when he first meets him and they're discussing it. And he, he uses the line of, of being cool as well. Uh, and Dexter actually describes himself as uncool <laughs> quite a few times. And um, I think it does definitely play into the idea of their identity um, and what, what the band is going through. So the band is just, is going through this period of, like I said, trying to understand what it means to be rock stars and not lose their hold on reality, (laughs) but get their way through it. And, and they don't, 
they don't know what they're doing either. So in a sense, they're kind of trying to be cool because they want to hold this image as well uh, for the for the public. They, they they feel like there's an expectation, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's an expectation, yeah. like you said, of, of what we think a rock star should be like. Um, and so they struggle with that and they become preoccupied with that and money. And that's, that's really when everything goes downhill. Um, and I think that Penny has the same problem, you know, when she puts on her bandaid persona, Mm -hmm. she's extremely confident and you would not recognize her from the girl that is underneath that fur coat where she's incredibly vulnerable and has a real name that she's unwilling to share and feels hurt and doesn't want to be the side girl. Um, Mm -hmm. So we put on these masks and this is really a story of shows us that, you know, it's really no different for, for any of us. Like these, these rock stars are doing the same thing. They're putting on the mask and William throughout is, trying to discover for himself what whether or not to wear a mask in a lot of ways um yeah and what decisions he's gonna make that are gonna define him so yeah Mm -hmm. i i love the exploration of of what it means to be cool or not cool Um, yeah and yeah i was gonna say those ideas play into i think one of the bigger themes which is about authenticity honesty uh, perception and and I love the big jumbled mess that this all is because it made me ask the question, is anyone honest in this film? I mean, truly. I mean, is there a pure soul that exists in this movie? And it's hard for me to find one. Maybe William, but he even lies about his age. You know, he, I mean, I'm being very trivial here. He deepens his voice when talking to Rolling Stone on the, on the telephone and yeah i think he's the closest that might come to being honest but i think you you made a good point in that he's trying to figure out what he wants to be and whether or not that is an honest portrayal of who he is i know that he's incredibly frustrated with people around him who are not honest (laughs) and who are trying to put up this facade of, of being cool or whatever it is and, you know, at one point, I think he calls out, he calls out Penny and he says, when and where does this real world occur? Because she continues to talk about that. And, and I'm with him. I question that as well. I'm like, where's the real world here? I felt that, I think I felt that, that frustration and that struggle that, that I think he does because he wants to know, you know, what's the truth? What's the truth? And, you know, the, the way that that's done, you know, coincidentally, honestly, I think is one of the strengths of this film and what Cameron Crowe does as a writer and a director. Yeah, I would agree. I like the, I like the fact that it's morally gray and that he's sort of a hypocrite in some ways because he's really not being fully honest either. Um, and, and, but I think more of his lack of honest, I mean, his, Obviously, the lying about his age is the thing that he does that's front and center, but he doesn't know what he wants to be. Like, he doesn't know if he should write the truth or if he shouldn't write the truth. Um, what is it that Dexter tells him? Be unmerciful, honest, and 
unmerciful? Yeah. Is that what he says? Yeah, he says you have to make your reputation on being honest and unmerciful. Right. Honest and unmerciful. And so, you know, throughout the movie, William is kind of processing information through that lens. Like, should I be honest and unmerciful about these things that I'm seeing? Or is there a reason to not be honest, you know, uh, to some extent because of the damage that it could do? Oh, absolutely. The choices that have been made. Right. Um, And so, yeah, he is, he's definitely probably, Probably the most pure, you know, maybe mom, if we're going to go with side characters, but, <laughs> but that's cheating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of the main characters. We'll stick with the band. We'll stick with the band, we'll stay with the band area. Yeah. If yeah. we're going to stick with the band and then, then he's, he would be that character for us. Yeah. Lester is a, is a great, uh, I think sounding board for him. And there's a, there's a conversation that they have near the beginning where they're sitting down having lunch or something. And the line you have to make your reputation on being honest and unmerciful comes after him. You know, he says you have an honest face and they're going to tell you everything. You can't make friends with these rock stars. If you're going to be a true journalist, a rock journalist, you've got to know that uh, they're going to buy you drinks. You're going to meet girls. They're going to try to fly you to places for free, offer you drugs. And I know it sounds great, but these people are not your friends. These are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars. They'll ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. And then it just becomes an industry of cool. When I, when I heard him say that at this point in the film, I thought, wow, cool. That's a great little, you know, little speech about what it means to be a great rock writer. But as the movie progressed, I began to see this really takes shape as being, wow, this life is incredibly intoxicating. Um, there's a moment uh, just after they're, you know, I think it's one point they're on the bus and, and, and William says uh, to Penny, I have to, I have to get this interview with him uh, because I have to get home. And she looks at him with those doughy eyes and she says, you are home. Mm-hmm. And she puts her head on his shoulder. I mean, who would not melt in that moment. Oh, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and th- that moment really solidified to me that, man, this life is intoxicating. This life is tempting. It's tempting just to throw your entire life away and to become somebody else for the sake of this, you can call it glamor, this fantasy, this fairy. T- I don't know what the appropriate word is for it, but I think that, you know, Lester, was onto something because it wasn't just about being a rock writer. It was about really losing, you know, losing your soul, losing who you are in the midst of this rock and roll party and rock and roll uh, experience. And you're not even on stage playing an instrument or singing. I mean, you're just writing about this stuff. And uh, I love that that had weight to it as the film went on. Well, I like that you mentioned that that moment with the the two of them, and it's it's a very kind of connecting moment, not to say you know like a connecting point that we would use, but it's a it's a moment where you you feel that they their relationship has some some seriousness to it and some depth, and one of the themes that it is portraying is the family idea of family, and that's really what Cameron Crowe is going for. Uh, and actually in his speech, when he was accepting the Oscar for best original screenplay, which this one, I think it was nominated for four 
but yet yeah. it, it was a box office bomb when it came out, which is just well, it, it won best for, best it won best foreign film in Australia. So let me just put that out there. Okay, did it seriously? <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and it did, and it did win best picture at the Golden Globes that year. I will say that. Wow. So. so difference of opinions i guess in those those hmm. award shows huh we've never Indeed. seen that before um <laughs> so in his speech he talks about how this is you know obviously a, it's a love letter to the music um it's not a story about rock stars it's more of a of a love story for the music itself but he also talks about how his own family you know had this this similar situation when when he was a, a kid and so that's how he portrayed the band. You know, Stillwater is very much like a family. They have their spats and right. they argue and they fight and they will have moments where they legitimately hurt each other or bring things to bear that are going to cause major problems, like what comes out on the plane. Um, but they emerge through that intact and stronger. Um just like William's family does, right? When he comes home to mom and when the sister comes home, um, I think that those two groups walk through this film in growth together. And at the end of the day, that's what it shows us is that, you know, family is really what matters the most out of this whole thing. Right. Um, and the music is just, in this case, the device that the commonality for this particular family I could be could be street racing, but instead it's music. <laughs> and there were no Coronas present at any point in this film, which kind of depressed me. Don't uh, do but, drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs> I need a family like whistle, like like what she has for him. That'd be kind of fun, just to embarrass my child when he goes to a rock concert. Oh, please don't. <laughs> can I can I just say that is one of my favorite moments of the film. You were talking when we were opening about the smile on your face. And I actually specifically noted that I had this grin that I was like, Oh wow. I was like self becoming self-aware of why I was grinning at this, this time. And I realized that whole portion where William first meets Stillwater at the back door of the concert hall. Mm -hmm. And you know, they kick him and tell him, they tell him to go out and, and come back later. I really, enjoy that whole section right because he he has some there's some great dialogue that takes place and they're like you know they just push him off and then he starts throwing out their names and throwing out facts about him and they, understand, <laughs> they realize and and he makes those great quotes and then um jeff turns to him he's like hey man don't stop there i'm in incendiary i'm yeah. incendiary too come on and they like and they're like hey this guy's awesome bring him in and it continues when they go in and they're listening to the music and he's he picks up his notepad to write some stuff down, right? And Penny kind of stops him and she's like, "No. <laughs> just be here, right? Like yeah. just be in this moment and and enjoy this concert." And I smiled this whole section of the film and realized like, "Man, that's that's the joy that the music in this case is an example can bring us when we just yeah. were really engaged with it. Oh man. And so let's just, let's just segue into that. Let's talk about this soundtrack. Let's talk about the music of the film because yes, there is the power of family that exists and music might be a device, but man, it's one heck of a device. And I think in some ways 
music is another <laughs> it's gonna sound terrible member of the band i mean music is what really connects each one of these guys together i i loved i was listening to to the soundtrack on spotify and then it got me thinking about sing street and the power that soundtrack had for me and uh just man why music makes me feel good and particularly why this kind of music music from this era um my dad once told me because of my love for this kind of music he said you were born in the wrong decade <laughs> and i i would have to agree because listening to Simon and Garfunkel and Elton John and and Cat Stevens i mean wow that just it just it does something to me personally where i go i love it i absolutely love it but then i see how the music is embodied in each one of these characters i mean i don't know that there's any real uh, you know throughout the film i don't know if there's any moment besides when these guys are walking around that that russell or jeff don't have a guitar in their hands mm-hmm. you know i mean that's what real artistry is when you walk around with your 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 instrument with your tool because you never know when inspiration is going to strike i mean music is an extension of who they are and therefore it's almost like breathing for them and i love seeing that because it tells me how passionate they are about the music and the thing that we kind of uh, explore there is how they lose that as they've grown together as a band because they've kind of embraced this idea of of coolness of being significant and they sort of given in to that false sense of what's really valuable and what really matters and why they eventually you know why they ultimately started the band to begin with mm-hmm. and I think we get resolution in that but when I think about that and I and I look at movies like once and sing street where music becomes such a proponent such a driving force of a film it tells me so much about how important that is to the characters uh not just because it makes them feel something but how it actually kind of translates into a piece of who they are yeah i i completely agree um i don't have a personal connection to the creation of music that I know you do. Um, yeah. you're, you're a musician. You play the guitar. Um, you've done so for many years. It's always been something that has brought you great joy. Uh, and I don't, I don't relate to that. Now, what I do relate to is the moving way in which music can affect our emotions and yeah. affect our thoughts Um, I am highly susceptible to these things as a very emotional person, just as when I watch film and I feel film, film, um, I feel music strongly and it can enhance or deepen whatever mood I'm in, like in an instant. Uh, And I think we see multiple examples of that throughout this film. There's one great scene um, where it's, it's actually right after what I was talking about earlier where he went to the concert with the band and um, they end up at the first kind of party mm-hmm. and it's in a house and it's, it's what you're talking about. It's, it, yep. it, it actually reminded me, Patrick, you sent me a video today of a scene from the movie once where yes. they're just hanging out in the room and you specifically called out. There's just kind of beer bottles and, and you know, half ba- opened bags of chips kind of hanging around the, the room on the tables. These people have just been sitting in the room talking, laughing, and playing music. 
that same scene happens in this film where that's what the band's doing. It's post-concert, and they're just hanging out. Russell's got a guitar, and he's just mm-hmm. strumming it, and people are sitting in chairs talking to each other, and they're kind of – groups are over here in a corner just kind of singing to each other, singing along, you know, It's mm-hmm. and it's it, it's such a raising of the spirits and communal activity, um, unlike some other things. Like I would say I have the same sort of passion for – movies but movies don't give me the same communal aspect when i'm watching a film when i'm watching it i'm not talking to someone else that happens afterwards like what we're doing now but music is a very participatory um interest in that regard and so i love how it's portrayed um but like and yeah like you said the soundtrack's phenomenal uh top to bottom stillwater's the the way that cameron crowe created the band of stillwater it's it's perfect. I mean, it is such a great blend of that '70s rock band of Creedence Clearwater Revival or something. Um, their sound is amazing. They f- feel like they legit would have been a hit band with their own CD. You know, like Fever Fever Dog is as good as any '70s rock song <laughs> that actually was released by a real band, and it's a movie song. So. I was actually going to ask you that. The soundtrack, this brings up the perfect time for me to ask you this question. Uh, when we did uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World a couple months ago, mm-hmm. we did a bonus episode uh, for our patron supporters <laughs> where, where we going. we talked about our top five movie bands. And Stillwater was, a, uh, I want to say it was like my number two or three. So my question is, do you think that Stillwater would have cracked your top five now that you've seen this film? Uh, my heart says yes, but my head says no. Okay. Only, only because the, the film soundtrack was so full of other popular tunes that I just am in love with anyway. I don't know that there was enough about Stillwater's music per se that would gravitate, would put that in the top five for me. I will tell you that it's not entirely their music that led me, led me to choosing them. Okay. Um, because I took it as a whole. And when the question of, of what my favorite movie band is, I think living through this summer with them as people and their personalities, getting to know them was every bit as awesome as the great music that they played and so that that played into my decision as well and i and i'm putting you on the spot i know so you (laughs) you you know with some reflection you might change your mind who knows but i just i thought about it when when we were talking about pressure i was like man i remember doing that episode and i was like if you'd only seen this movie this would be in contention well you're absolutely right i mean it would have been in contention and so hindsight it's hard for me to, I'd have to go back to my list. I may have to listen to our bonus episode and find out what I put in there and be like, could I get rid of one of these? Um, and Sing Street, right? My, that one's got to go. Oh, blasphemy on air. I don't, I don't know why we're doing this now. I'm just going <laughs> to quit. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did like is their stage presence. As a band, I thought their stage presence was phenomenal. I loved how authentic they felt as a band. Um, that thing you do, the, the, uh, the wonders big hit. One of the things I read about them as a band is the actors actually learned to play their instruments so that it could feel more authentic. And something just inside me says, 
well, I don't believe that that Jason Lee sings like that. <laughs> I'd like to believe that uh, that uh, Billy Crudup does play that guitar that well. I'm probably wrong, but I felt like it didn't. They felt like a genuine band. They didn't yeah. feel like actors performing as a band. And I think what really helped sell that was that I love that you called that like spending the summer with them because that's what we did. We mm-hmm. spent the summer on the bus with them. And I think that the performances by each of these actors really helped make a movie challenging what it means to be honest, really authentic. <laughs> so, yeah. You know who else learned to play their instrument for a movie? I have no idea. Ryan Gosling. <laughs> and what movie was that? Oh, I think it was called La La Land, and it's really good. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it yet, you should watch it because it's amazing. <laughs> it's only fair. If we're going to like talk about Sing Street, we got to talk about La La Land. So No, we don't. I, I, had, yeah. I had to find a way to get it in there. Listeners, when you hear this, please let us know if that's a legit thing to, to do. But you're probably right. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know. Um, the performances, I want to really kind of hit on the performances real quick. I thought this was a, a fantastic cast. Uh, I was <laughs> so good, man. It's so good. I, I don't know that I've ever seen Billy Crudup. I don't know what else I've seen him in. I can't call out what else I know him from. He's the voice of the MasterCard commercials. I knew that. That's and not helpful. He was, al- he was also in. Uh, he was also in Big Fish, uh, which is not a, a, a huge movie. Danny Elfman. Uh, sorry, not Danny Elfman. Uh, Tim Burton mm-hmm. and Danny Elfman. You know, production or whatever. But yeah, there's not a lot that I remember him him being in. But yeah. he was fantastic. I don't know either, but I just, I loved him in this. I thought he was perfect. I thought Jason Lee was perfect. I absolutely heart Kate Hudson in ridiculous. And man, you know, Rip, Philip Seymour Hoffman again, you know, who we (laughs) lost recently. And he is just, he's not a huge part of this film, but he is perfect in this role. Yeah, I was, I was curious when I saw the credits roll. Um, what parts these guys are going to be playing? Because these are these are names that I became very familiar with, you know, in recent years. So I'm wondering, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, Billy Crudup, Jason Lee. Oh, I remember those guys. You know, what are they going to do? And then I see this obscure name pop up, uh, Jimmy Fallon. I'm like, what? <laughs> What's happening here? <laughs> Did I miss this? Where is what is Jimmy? Who is Jimmy Fallon? Jimmy Fallon plays their new temporary manager respectively <laughs> does you, oh that's right he does and, and actually oh you know what that's interesting because that role was originally written um cameron crow wanted it to be david bowie that's who he initially tried Are to you get serious? yes that's who he <laughs> was originally going after was david bowie i you know what i didn't even notice that's pretty phenomenal i didn't pick wow up. must be the glasses i uh, guess that, so <laughs> i did notice yeah. dwight Yes, <laughs> it's from The Office. Dwight Schrute is in this movie, and, he was and he's very much Dwight Schrute. Yes, he's yeah, he very was. much Dwight Schrute. <laughs> just a little bit thinner. <laughs> I think, yeah, but all the performances were just fantastic. I think they were perfect for the roles that they were in. It did make me think there was a um, there's a really great scene just before Russell uh, goes on his little acid bender, 
when they show off the T-shirt, which by the way, I want that T-shirt. I want a, I want that Stillwater T-shirt. But but he and he and William have that big kind of blow up, and William specifically. I'm not William. I'm sorry. Je, uh, him and Jeff, they have that big blow up, and Jeff basically says, you know, we agreed that I was going to be the front man and you were going to be the mystique. And they argue back and forth, and then the conversation or the conversation ends with him saying, "And I think it's time to say that there's something <laughs> about said, your hair." What does he say? He says, "I think it's time to just call this out, the, call this out, and call it like it is, or whatever." He's like, "Your looks are becoming a problem, man." <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know whether to just be quiet or laugh. It's so, so honest. It is such it a relate. Really they have such, you know. I viewed them throughout this movie as best friends. Like they, they're clearly close and there are moments where they, he specifically says in the plane and he's like, I don't love you. I never loved you. This is like all about business and da 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 da. And this is just a means, but you really never get that sense. Like, you know that these guys are close, right? And that they did this together and it would be like you and I having a dispute about artistic direction of the podcast. We might get heated. We might have completely different desires. But at the end of the day, that's going to blow over and we're going to have each other's back. And that's how I felt about their relationship. But that scene is phenomenal. It is. It really is. Would you ever say about us that my looks are becoming a problem? I (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. I have, a, I have a face. For I you. swear, if the next feeling film T-shirt Patrick has your face <laughs> and I am like faded out in the background, we we are gonna have problems. We've got enough contributors to the show now that we can make it happen. <laughs> oh no! You know what? That's you know what? I'm worried now that somebody's gonna Photoshop this and pop it in the Facebook group. <laughs> I shouldn't have even said that. I just probably Celebrate. sealed my own fate. Do it! Do it! Do it! Faithful listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I like their. I love their chemistry, and I think that, you know, when that discussion of what their roles were made me think about the actors and just thinking about them in opposing roles. If they had switched roles, I don't think it would have worked for me. Oh, because gosh, Jason no. Lee, because Jason Lee, as an actor and knowing what he's been in, is perfect for that. Just that arrogant, all talk, just you know, bloated. Just I'm important. <laughs> And then you got, uh, you know, Billy Crudup, who's just like, look, I'm just trying to be me, whatever that is. <laughs> and I just, I feel like if you'd reverse those roles, it wouldn't be nearly as strong. And so I thought that was kind of, I don't know, somewhat meta. <laughs> I wonder if on set they had that conversation like, you know what? If you'd been cast in this, <laughs> it would have been a problem. <laughs> no. no, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we get into our connecting points, is there anything else you wanted to to bring up to to talk about? Um, you know, there there's um the one thing that I just wanted to note was for those that don't know, Cameron Crowe's wife uh, is Nancy Wilson, and they actually wrote a lot of Stillwater's songs. So I just I just thought that was pretty incredible. Um, that's and cool. that's a neat achievement. Um, Nancy Wilson is of, from the band Heart, by the way. Mm-hmm. So she has she's, Bri- she's, she's Brian cred. Wilson's daughter, right? She is of the Beach Boys. Of the, of the Beach Boys. That is correct. So that's just a neat little tie-in uh, that I wanted to make sure everybody was aware of. Um, you know, I don't know that I haven't seen much recently from Cameron Crowe, but I'm shocked uh, that 
he hasn't had a more spoken about career, I guess. Like we don't talk about him. His name doesn't come up much in film circles, but this is just an incredible film. And what he's done here, I don't, I don't know that it can be topped to be honest. I mean, it is way up there at the pinnacle of coming of age films for me. It's, it's just, it's up there, man. I mean, it it was in my top third. I think I put it at 32 after my first viewing. I love it that much. And it's going to raise, it's going to go up. I, I really adore it. And one other thing I want to mention, Patrick, we found this out tonight kind of by mistake or by accident that I watched recently the regular film. And when I watched it the first time I watched, I guess what was the director's cut? And I didn't know that, but you were like, man, this is a long movie. It's two hours and 41 minutes. Well, the movie I watched today was like two hours and three minutes. And there were a couple scenes. I was like, huh, where did that go? So there's actually a much longer cut out there. Um, and I'm curious, I'd be curious to know what listeners who have seen both think. Uh, so if anybody out there has feedback or you want to let us know come by, you know, via the Facebook group or via Twitter or e- send us an email, just I'm curious what you guys think of the two different versions and if you have a preference. Because um, I personally believe, having seen both, that they're, they they both equally work. I think that you, if you want to sit down and have a longer experience in, in this world, that the extended edition works fine. I enjoyed the heck out of it when I first saw it, not knowing it was extended. And the two-hour version I watched today was a little more condensed and tight and didn't feel like I was missing anything. I thought it was a great, great movie, too. So, Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to scour the web at some point and see what all the differences are. I do know that, based on my reading, the original title of the film was going to – he wanted <laughs> – Cameron Crowe wanted to call it Untitled. If you want to call it a title, yeah. <laughs> and so – when uh, the studio wouldn't let him do that. And so in the director's cut or the extended edition that has like, you know, half an hour more, the opening credits where he's, you know, scribbling out, you know, the, the actors and stuff in pencil, mm-hmm. instead of saying almost famous, he scribbled out untitled. Does he really? So, I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't even pick up on that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, there's several other ones. There's another scene where they're in a, a radio interview and some other small things here and there, but um, I don't know if I want to see the old one or the, the original cut now because I've enjoyed the, the extended so much. But I think I believe you when you say it didn't miss any beats story-wise or didn't have an, any less of an emotional impact by watching the theatrical cut. Good. Well, so. I'm, I'm glad that we probably stand alone on that but, or stand united, <laughs> not alone. alone. We don't stand alone. We stand united. <laughs> it's all happening. It's all happening. Uh, (laughs) All right. So all that being said, I know each of us have a moment that we connected with. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start us out if that's cool. I think that would be fantastic. So the scene that stood out to me the most, and I think this is one that a lot of people resonate with. um, I looked back at our contributors messenger uh, chat because I know that (laughs) there were a couple of moments that that Steve and Don pointed out and you were like, Hey, patch hasn't seen the movie yet. So I actually went back and looked after seeing the movie and sure enough, the scene that they called out was the one that was my favorite. And it's the moment just after Russell goes off on his little acid trip bender where he calls himself the golden God and he gets on the bus 
right as Tiny Dancer starts to play. And, and this is what's really fun to me is usually when we see a change of scene and we hear music playing, we assume that the audience is hearing it, that it's not necessarily being heard by the, you know, by the, by the characters. It's just kind of music overlaid. Cool, very cool. I like Tiny Dancer. It's a fun song. But we realize that the band is actually listening to the song on the bus. And what I love about this scene is the fact that it demonstrates something incredibly true about the power of music that it can bring people to this this common place. Um, how many times, I mean, have, have we, if people had these moments being around folks that we don't know and a song comes on whose lyrics we all know, you know, case in point, you're at a baseball game and you hear uh, Sweet Caroline. And so you start singing with the people next to you uh, who you've never even met and you're dancing and whatnot. At least that's what I've done. I don't know if you've done that or if, you know, if, whatever, but we all start smiling and singing and in some cases even dancing and the power tiny, behind that. Tiny dancing. Tiny dancing. Just tiny dancing. <laughs> but the power behind this is so relevant. I mean, the moment comes just after there's an argument that threatens to break up the band and the song brings them back together through that power that connection that they have, and that's music. Music has that kind of power, and, and here it shows that it not only diffuses the situation, but it brings them back to the thing, the one thing that made them want to start playing in the first place, because they loved music. They simply loved music. And so when you see, when you see the, the bass player start singing, and then you see Jeff, and then you see... Um, I think I don't know if William starts singing or not uh, next, but but eventually Russell starts smiling. Yeah, and then he starts singing, and then the 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 chorus, "Hold me close, the tiny dance." You know, they're all just singing at the top of their lungs. They don't care if they don't sound good or not. I've had those moments. I've I've gone on, you know, youth trips to Colorado, and a song has come on the radio, and we all just start singing <laughs> along with with this with this song and there's just something magical about that and there's something that is very communal about it we can all connect to that when you can remember the lyrics to the song with people that are around you there's something just it just breaks down these kinds of walls and i think it was so important after that big confrontation for them to experience that because it it did so much for them you know in diffusing the the situation and bringing them back to where where they ultimately needed to be and that was just love what you do play music, do it, you know? So yeah, that was my connecting point. I think it's a connecting point with several people. And I got to tell you, I liked Tiny Dancer before watching this movie. I love it now. I've been listening to it on repeat and just singing it to myself all day long. (laughs) (laughs) That's, you know, that is absolutely what happens. And, and, you know, I've noticed this so much with watching a bunch of coming of age films recently where, the music stands out and almost all of them have a song that is just specifically connecting for me. And you know, you're right. This is the scene of the movie. I believe I don't, I don't really question that at all. I think it is the most emotional, um, the most joyous. It's the one where we all just are with them in that moment. And there's this level of unspoken forgiveness that they have for Russell and his his night where he ran off and whatever he did it doesn't matter anymore because they're back together communally and they're they're a family like we talked about 
uh, and they're they're bonding over this song and it's it's just a beautiful 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 moment and i've i've been listening to it too for the last day or so now um, i can't get it out of my head i was singing in the shower uh, before we started podcasting so uh, it is it's amazing and i'm i'm really glad that you brought that one up um i have to admit though so so that's got to be my my favorite as well. Um, I think that that is an all time scene for me, probably of all movies. I, I just, I love it, but there is something else in this movie that is also a strong connecting point for me. Um, and that is the final interview, final meeting uh, between Russell and William at William's house. Uh, so we know that Russell has called uh, Penny up and she said, come over. It's okay. And instead she's given him William's address. He shows up. He's surprised. Um, there's just a great acting job by Billy Crudup in this whole scene of kind of surprise and handling it kind of suavely. Um, when the mom comes out, she obviously knows this is coming and William has just finally gotten back home. Uh, he doesn't know Russell's coming. He's getting back to his regular life. He's, he's felt betrayed by the band, by his friends. And in this moment, the two guys get back together and they just talk as two guys. They talk as friends, like in his room, they, they have this relationship that it's no longer a rock star and a wannabe journalist. It's two guys who had been in love with the same girl. And it's, it's like there's this moment of dialogue that is to me what is the perfect spoken companion uh, to the musical emotion that we get in the tiny dancer scene. And this is when William asks him, he says, okay, we're ready for the interview. We're going to do this. He says, we're going to start. What do you love about music? And Russell just says to begin with everything. And that line is perfect for me i i think that it completely encompasses the passion that people who are truly in love with their art feel i mean i know what this feeling is like for other things you know what this feeling is like i'm sure many of you listeners have felt this same emotion whether it's music or about some other aspect of your life but there's something that you love so much that that's that would be your response what do you love about it everything you ask me what I love about La La Land right now, we can make jokes about it, but I'm going to tell you everything, everything. There's a reason that I am counted amongst my one or two top favorite films of all time. Um, there's a reason that we push through the hard times uh, of being a band member and going through ups and downs of, of being a band and a family. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, this quote sums it up for me, and I just I love it. But to begin with, everything it's like to me, it's the perfect answer. It's the perfect end for this film. It couldn't have been done better, and it, it absolutely deserves the Oscar it won for writing. And so that was my connecting point, Patrick. That's great, man. It's a great connecting point, and um, it really just brings together everything that makes the the movie so wonderful. Um, if you guys want to continue the discussion with us we'd love to talk more about this film in uh, in more detail we can take the regular theatrical conversation or we can spend 30 more minutes and talking about the extended conversation whatever but if you want to if you want to contact me specifically bad jokes aside 
if you want to contact me, you can contact me at the, the big three, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm at shoeless patch, S H O E L E S S P A T C H. And, um, if you want to find more past episodes, you can check out our backlog at feelinfilm.com. As uh, Aaron mentioned, you can check out some, uh, some of our contributing writers work. Uh, Don Shanahan's up there along with, uh, our newest entry, Jeremy, uh, Kokara. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. <laughs> and also Steve Clifton, uh, some great, great talent coming through the, uh, the feel and film web page. So check that out. Check out their writing. Check out past episodes, and uh, enjoy what you hear and what you read. Yeah, if you would like to continue the conversation with me specifically, you can find me everywhere at Aaron L. White, A A R O N E L W H I T E. Alternatively, you can email me at goldengod at gmail dot com. Um, <laughs> you can find me tweeting from. Please don't do that. I don't have. I did any that idea. with a straight face. I, I don't have any not. idea who's, that who that's going to go to. Um, <laughs> You can also find me tweeting from the show's Twitter at Feelin' Film. We do have a Facebook group. We mention it a lot, but that's because we love it and we want you all to come join it. So if you have a Facebook, come pop your head in there. Uh, you can find a link to that from our front page of our website, or it's always in the show notes and the blog post for every episode as well. What we've got coming up is a lot. Uh, it is busy, busy, busy time for Feelin' Film. Uh, with the launch of Feelin' Film Plus recently, SIF uh, coverage is in full swing. There will be some more of that coming out over the next few weeks. I know that Patrick has some Feel and Film Plus content scheduled uh, as well to be dropping in there. So again, check that feed out, subscribe to that one, and you know, rate and review if you wouldn't mind, because that show's brand new and showing people uh, a little love so they can they can decide whether or not they want to come check that out would be awesome. Uh, giving them an idea of what to expect if you are so inclined. We have two bonus episodes for our Patreon supporters coming up very soon. We will be dropping a trivia episode where Patrick and I try to stump each other with some movie trivia. That should be, I want to say fun, but I don't know how it's going to turn out because if I don't win, it's not going to be fun. Um, we might test our friendship on that one. <laughs> we might, yeah. The band might break up. Uh, and then I'm not sure what the other episode is going to be on yet, but there will be another bonus episode dropping in the next week or two uh, before the end of the month. Next week... Uh, we have our donor pick for May that was chosen. Uh, the voters chose The Lion King. So I'm excited about that. Uh, long has been my favorite animated Disney film, Patrick. So talking about that one should be fun. And then our next uh, main feel and film episode on Memorial Day weekend will be the live-action Kenneth Branagh-directed remake of Cinderella. And I'm pumped to talk about that one. It's a film that I adore and wasn't expecting to adore so kind of caught me off guard and i just was swept away by that movie and can't wait to discuss it well i can't wait to watch it this will be a first time watch for me as well and so i'm looking forward to to seeing that and uh talking about it with you so lots of uh it's a disney heavy couple of weeks for us i didn't even notice that but you're right yeah so it's good stuff. Well, we're signing off, but um, we hope to catch you next time on Feeling Film. But in the meantime, stay positive. And keep feeling film. I'm on drugs! <laughs>